Brian, I am not the writer of that one worship song, by the way, if you saw. I'm Brian with an I. <laughs> but good morning again. Um, I'm one of the elders here at North Shore Church, um, and I'm reading the scripture for today, which is out of Acts 2, 1 to 21, and then I'll pray for us. Here's the word of the Lord. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as the fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered. Because each one of them, each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabians, were hearing them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I shall show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Father, we, we come to you this morning in awe of who you are. You are holy above all else, mighty beyond anything we can fathom. Your glory surpasses anything that, can imagine, that we can imagine, and when we do try to describe your greatness, we are limited by what we know. Thank you, Father, for your compassion for us. Thank you for supplying us what we need, and please help us to see life through the lens of your will so that we can see life's events as your purpose and direction for us, no matter what it is, and help us to have supernatural faith. Trust in you for the extreme as well as the mundane, and help us to have eyes that see your will for us and help us be obedient to it, especially when we struggle and suffer. 
And help us to remember that life is not up to chance. Nothing is random. We are thankful that you determine our steps. So no matter what comes our way, it was from you and allowed by you. So please help us to really and truly believe that. Father, we pray that everything we do here at North Shore would honor and glorify Jesus. We need workers to do what we've what we've been called to do. Please bring uh, the necessary leaders and laborers. Father, bring those that are willing to serve you and love you and love your people. And it's truly awesome to see how you are working through this body. And Father, you know that this body has many needs. We pray for Sue Hench and the healing of her broken kneecap. We pray for for our mighty prayer warrior Joe Wells and the, and the pain he has been enduring. Thank you for his faithfulness. We pray that you bring him relief and healing. And we pray for um, continued support for Teresa Boscarino and the Abundant Life Mission. We pray that you bring about the necessary workers there and prayer support for that vital ministry. We also thank you, Father, for blessing this church with an awesome prayer conference last week. May it be fruitful and glorifying to you. And finally, help us to be a congregation that doesn't just check the box by showing up here on Sunday, and that's just it. Help us to desire you each day of the week. Help us to fulfill your commands of loving you with everything we have and loving others so much that we we would do what is needed to help them experience you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, your word is called by so many titles. It is our daily bread. It is also a hammer. It is also a sword, a surgeon's scalpel. God, would you wield your word now in such a way so that it does accomplish the purpose for which you intend. And we are thankful for the promise that that will happen. Do this for Jesus' sake, we pray in his name. Amen. We continue this week in the second chapter of the book of Acts as we take a closer look at this really defining moment in the history of the church called Pentecost. Last week, we began to set the table for this by giving some Old Testament context for Pentecost. We also spent some time thinking about what an enormous seismic shift this was in salvation history as God poured out his spirit on the church. We're also reminded that this period of church history recorded in Acts was a transitional one. By that we mean, among other things, when the spirit was poured out, all of those who had been with Jesus, the apostle and these other 120 people or so, they were already believers. They were born again by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So for those believers, Pentecost was a second experience of the Holy Spirit because they'd already experienced the Holy Spirit as Old Testament saints, and we looked at what that meant. Today, among other things, we're going to be asking, is that two-stage experience, is that 
normal for believers today. Finally, we saw Luke's priority when he was dealing with Pentecost. He highlighted the power of the Spirit in both Acts and in Luke's Gospel. Power for witness, local and global. In Luke 24, 49, when Jesus promised the Spirit, it was a promise to his disciples that they would be clothed with power from on high. A few weeks later, in Acts 1.8, he promised again to his disciples that they would again receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. So Luke wants us to see that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is a time when God is providing power for his people to witness supernaturally. In Acts, we see this witness primarily through the incredibly bold preaching of the gospel by the apostles, but also some other people as well. We also see it in the holy living and the loving lives of these people of God who'd been filled with the Spirit. And we also see it through signs and wonders, healing and other things like that in the book of Acts. Related to this, we saw Luke's consistent pattern in Acts. We trace several different examples of this, where he reveals that each new group of people where the gospel has penetrated, when each particular new group is manifest, there's evidence, there's inescapable evidence that these people too had received the Spirit. This evidence is manifest by the laying on of hands of the apostles. It was also by accompanying signs like believers speaking in tongues and prophetically speaking of the mighty works of God. This week, we want to dig a little bit more into the text that Brian just read for us about the outpouring of the Spirit. And so I just want to read again the first four verses to keep us very familiar with it. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Last week, we looked at the day of Pentecost from an Old Testament background. So perhaps the first question we need to address today as we look at this section is, why, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, were these accompanying signs of a sound of a mighty rushing wind and these divided tongues of fire? I mean, there were a lot of accompanying signs that could have been given to indicate the presence of the Holy Spirit. Why is it that these two, in particular, were chosen? Well, We'll look at it in detail in a moment, but the short answer is because both of these were well-known Old Testament indicators of the presence of God. That's why. You have to remember that the only Bible that these people had in Acts chapter 2 was the Old Testament, and so anything that was going to be unmistakably communicating that God was coming to dwell on earth in a new way that had to be in Old Testament terminology or in ways that they could see. Ah, that's what we see in the scriptures, the rushing wind. Well, rushing wind is in the Old Testament seen many times as a symbol of God's presence. We see this in places like Job chapter 38. If you know from Job, you know that Job has a series of complaints against God, and God finally answers him through a withering series of questions of his own, 
to humble Job and to show him how foolish he'd been. But as he begins his series of questions, we read in verse 1 of chapter 38, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and, and, and said. And then so God is speaking, God is present, and he's present in the wind. The book of Ezekiel almost opens with this call to the prophet Ezekiel, and you get this just almost bizarre vision of God's manifest presence. It's apocalyptic in the way that it's, it's described, much like some of the language you see in the book of the Revelation. And notice in verse 4, it says, As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And so here we see both wind and fire representing the presence of God. So the wind was understood as representing God, but we also see this fire metaphor a lot in the Old Testament representing God's presence. We saw it in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush. We see it again in Genesis chapter 15 when God makes this covenant with Abraham. And how does God represent himself? Through a smoking fire pot. Many references to fire representing God in the Old Testament. So these were both Old Testament representations of the presence of God. And the main point, of course, of Pentecost is that after Jesus descended to the Father, or ascended to the Father, God is once again coming to dwell and to work among his people by his Spirit. We saw last week from the New Covenant passages we looked at from Jeremiah and Ezekiel that God was going to come by his Spirit and live within his people indwelling them. He would be the law written on the inside of their hearts. And this fulfilled the promise also of Jesus that he made to the disciples in the upper room when he said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. So when we get to verse 4, we come to a verse that has obviously been at the center of a well-known point of contention within the church since the turn of the last century. Luke says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, we should never engage in controversy for the sake of controversy because it always distracts us from what is really important. But truthfully, we can't pretend that the Pentecostal movement, what it believes about the Holy Spirit, in many ways from this text... And the questions that that raises for the church, that those things just don't exist. We can't treat it as if we live in a vacuum here. And so we want to look and see, if we're really serious about wanting to know what Luke means here by this, it seems we have to examine some of the claims that have been made and that have become part of the landscape of the church. So we don't want to steer away from this. It's the elephant standing in the room. We want to acknowledge the elephant and talk about it. From a historical perspective, it is important to get a historical perspective on this question because it is important for us to remember that before the birth of the modern Pentecostal movement in 1906 in Los Angeles, this was not a section of scripture that would have raised nearly as many questions. At that time, what has been identified as the Azusa Street Revival began, and this was characterized by unusual levels of spiritual zeal and worship among many believers who had understood 
to have had a powerful experience of the Holy Spirit. That involved in uh, speaking in other tongues or languages and unusual signs and wonders from God. And from that initial revival that continued on in different locations for several years, the Pentecostal movement began. And now there are about 600 million adherents. So this is almost twice the number of people as we have in the United States. Well, as these believers began to organize into local churches and denominations, they called themselves Pentecostals. And they did that because they understood that what had happened to them, especially as it relates to speaking in tongues, they understood that as a reigniting of the Spirit work here in Acts chapter 2. And though different groups had slightly different beliefs, the original adherents of Pentecostalism, and many till today, believed, along with the rest of the Christian church, that all genuine Christians had been regenerated or born again by the Spirit of God, that they had been baptized in the Holy Spirit, according to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one Spirit... We were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of the one Spirit. Now these Pentecostals believed that was true of all believers. They also believed, and, and many still believe this today, that what they had experienced, which involves speaking in tongues, is a separate and a distinct work of the Holy Spirit from that initial saving experience of the Spirit. In other words, they had experienced a second and distinct experience of the Holy Spirit, just as these earliest believers had experienced a second work of the Spirit. They referred to this experience by the biblically rooted term, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's very important for us to understand that this original strain of Pentecostalism, still held by many today, believe that this second experience of the Spirit needed to be understood by going back to John the Baptist, who prophesied that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And that's, of course, true, and it's found in all four of the Gospels. Pentecostals maintain that this baptism by Jesus with the Holy Spirit is what happened at Pentecost. And the second experience of the Holy Spirit, sometimes called the second blessing, is what they had experienced in Los Angeles and in subsequent places where this revival was spreading. Parenthetically, in the 1960s and 70s, a second wave of the Pentecostal movement called the Charismatic Renewal Movement began. And the Charismatic Renewal Movement tied into the Pentecostal movement because many of those people spoke in tongues they were certainly influenced by the Pentecostal movement, but in the Charismatic Renewal Movement, it wasn't forming denominations. It was across a lot of denominations, including like the Anglican Church or the Roman Catholic Church, where there were Charismatic Renewal Movements within those churches or within individual churches anyway. They weren't nearly as dogmatic about taking Acts chapter 2 to mean a second blessing. They really were just arguing for an openness to signs and wonders and spiritual gifts like prophecy. So if we understand this chapter correctly, it's important for us to see what is being taught here in light of this understanding that most of us have had some exposure to because of the significant influence that Pentecostalism has had in America. The question comes down to this, does a correct understanding of Acts chapter 2 require or necessitate that there be this two-stage experience with the Holy Spirit? 
with both groups being saved and indwelt by the Spirit, but only one having had this second experience of the Holy Spirit accompanied by speaking in tongues and this supernatural empowerment for witness that Jesus promised. Before we get into this, because this requires some distinctions being drawn between two parts of the Christian church, we have to set the stage a bit. First of all, on a personal level, full disclosure, I was saved in the Pentecostal church. And I spent my first few years as a believer within Pentecostalism. I have dear brothers and sisters within the Pentecostal movement. I've also been deeply grieved by the efforts of some non-Pentecostal church leaders to attack the Pentecostal church because at times they've been very unfair to the Pentecostal church. It is also true that many Pentecostal believers hold to some really unbiblical and not helpful, in fact, destructive doctrines like the prosperity gospel and the word of faith movement, which we're not going to go into now because we'd be here all afternoon, but they're an abomination to God. Not all Pentecostal people believe those things. Many Pentecostal and charismatic people have a deep love for God and they could teach us a few things about zeal for evangelism and missions and the freedom to openly express their joy in the Lord. Many Pentecostal believers are genuinely part of the Bride of Christ, and it is never wise to attack the Bride of Christ. Jesus doesn't like it when we attack his Bride. It is also sadly true that the Pentecostal movement as a whole, to their great detriment, at least for the most part, have not been open to learning from other parts of the Bible-believing church the importance of developing genuine biblical scholarship in studying the Bible and the importance of being careful to test their spiritual experiences in light of a deep and growing knowledge of Scripture. Again, the question as charismatic theologian Wayne Grudem, who's charismatic, he's part of the Vineyard Movement, and a host of other Pentecostal and non-Pentecostal theologians have pointed out is, does the Bible teach a real distinction between one group of believers who had this first Holy Spirit baptism by the Spirit himself, and the second group of believers who have experienced not only that baptism, but a second baptism by Jesus with the Holy Spirit? That's where this comes down to. In the opinion, even of many scholars like a man named Gordon Fee, who has an Assembly of God background, says that this two-tiered Christianity is simply not taught in the New Testament. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into, into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The truth is, in the original Greek language, and Greek scholars roundly agree on this, that there is no appreciable difference between this verse in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and the six other New Testament verses where Jesus is the baptizer of the Spirit, or with the Spirit. Grudem has written many books on why the gift of prophecy is valuable to the church. So he comes at this from a charismatic viewpoint, and he writes, it seems hard to deny that the original readers would have seen this phrase in 1 Corinthians, which is, in one spirit we were all baptized, 
as referring to the same thing as the other six verses because for them the words were the same. In other words, in Corinth, if you're sitting here in Corinth, the day that 1 Corinthians was read to the church and you heard 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, you would not be saying, oh, he's talking about the first baptism there, isn't he? Groom is saying that would not have occurred to these people. It would not have occurred that there are two separate experiences. And again, he's writing as a charismatic. It's also not found, this distinction of two baptisms, it's not found anywhere else in the New Testament. And that's really important because the New Testament contains history, the book of Acts, the Gospels, and then it contains epistles, which largely are where we get our doctrine from. It's better to get your doctrine from a letter written specifically to communicate doctrine than it is to write to get it from a letter that's communicating, here's what happened. Now, there's, there's good doctrine in Acts, but that's not Luke's point in writing the book of Acts. He's writing it as a history book. It's better if you have to choose where to get your doctrine, whether from a history book or an epistle that's written specifically to communicate doctrine, get your doctrine from the epistles. And none of the epistles draw this two-stage distinction. Jesus is the baptizer with the Holy Spirit, and that's what Acts chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians 12 both Imply. That means that the baptism in the Holy Spirit refers to this ministry of the Spirit at the beginning of the Christian life when he regenerates believers. That is, gives us spiritual life out of death. He cleanses us. He gives us new heart desires to seek after God and to turn away from sin. Now, having said that, that does not, however, mean that we cannot and should not have several and subsequent ongoing experiences with the Holy Spirit. We saw this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, where Paul is commanding believers, established believers. He says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And the verb, be filled, is a present tense verb, which means continuous action. Literally, it's be continually filled with the Spirit. There is one initial baptism of the Spirit, but believers should seek to be continually, regularly renewed in the filling of the Holy Spirit. Anything we do that genuinely honors God is done only in the power of the Spirit. Jesus says, the Spirit gives life, the flesh profits nothing. And as we saw last week, it's only in the power of the Spirit that we can continue the ministry of Christ. Here as his spiritual body, the church, which is the whole point. The question this raises is, what is this speaking in tongues about, and why isn't this something that all believers experience at their conversion? Well, first we have to admit that verse 4 very clearly says, all believers were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. But it's important for us to know what that means here. And frankly, the best place to see that is in the next five verses. Verses 5 through 10, or six verses, at least in part to reveal that. And Luke writes, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of them in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, 
Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Greeks and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. The background here, of course, is what we said last week. We know that this occurred on the Jewish holiday of Pentecost, which is one of three major Jewish festivals in the year, and that required by law that all Jewish men from the Roman Empire had to come back to Jerusalem. So at those holidays, you had this huge swelling of the population of Jerusalem with all of the people who'd come into town from all these other areas of the Roman Empire to celebrate the Jewish holiday. So you've got Jews from all over the Roman Empire, and Luke lists areas to the north, south, east, and west of Jerusalem across the empire, and each of these Jewish groups spoke the native language to the regions in which they lived. Okay? They spoke Hebrew, that was probably their native language, but they spoke these other languages in which they lived. So many Jews in the apostles' neighborhood at the time of Pentecost we're obviously drawn to this house because it says the sound of rushing wind came down from heaven. Okay, you'd probably go check that out too. And the tongues of fire, whatever that looked like. So they were drawn to all of this commotion and they find this group of 120 Galileans. These are Palestinian Jews. And they were speaking in languages and dialects of regions where these people who had been visiting Jerusalem came from. So they recognized them. They were speaking the mighty works of God. So they were praising God. This was kind of prophecy about the glory of God and His power and His majesty. It's important for us to see that this kind of speaking in tongues is very different than the spiritual gift of tongues that Paul treats in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Paul says that the gift, the spiritual gift of tongues, is not intelligible. That is, no one knows what you're saying. He says in 14.2, For no one speaks... No one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him. But he utters mysteries... In the spirit. So the gift of tongues must be given a supernatural interpretation in order to be understood. That's the gift of the interpretation of tongues. So a separate spiritual gift is required. That's not what is happening here at Pentecost, where these are known languages being spoken from all of these areas. And we see the response of these Jewish visitors in verse 12. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. So they're amazed and they're perplexed because these Palestinian Jews, these Galileans, were speaking in languages they could not have known on their own. But there is a group within this larger group that are mocking the same phenomena, saying the exact same thing, and they said, They're filled with new wine. Okay, now you have to wonder how deceived these people must have been. For those of you, like me, who were converted later in life and have periods of time when you actually had gotten drunk, that occurred to me a few times in college, uh, I didn't start speaking Aramaic. <laughs> just, that's just what I do when I'm drunk. I just speak these languages I have no way of knowing. So I don't know what these people were thinking, but Luke sets them straight, and he basically says, he sets them straight by saying, uh, it's 9 o'clock in the morning, they're not drunk. 
Okay, it's also clear that this is not the same kind of gift of tongues in chapter 12 and 14. The other question, as we've talked about, is why don't all believers have this experience at their salvation? That's a reasonable question. Well, first, as it relates to possessing the gift of tongues in chapter 12 and 14 of 1 Corinthians, like every other spiritual gift, not everybody gets every gift, Right? It's not a smorgasbord where you can kind of pick and choose. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12.30, Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interprets? And the construction of the original language forces there to be a negative answer. No, not all speak with tongues. That's the gift of tongues. So we have to ask why these believers spoke in other known languages when they received the Spirit, but there's no record of any subsequent generation of believers universally experiencing this. As we said, this was a transitional period in salvation history, so it was important. There had never been another group of New Covenant believers before. Never. This is the very first time this is happening. So God is demonstrating here that he's doing something new. This is the presence of God at work in these people. But beyond that, it seems likely that God is demonstrating that one of the characteristics of the new age of the Spirit, which is what we're beginning here in Acts chapter 2, will be that the gospel is for people of every tribe and every nation. And he's giving people supernatural languages to try to communicate that this is for everybody. Peter, who's freshly filled with the Holy Spirit, explains from the Old Testament what is happening here. He says, uh, this is in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and vapor and smoke the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes the great and magnificent day and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We're not going to be treating this part of the message in any great detail because so much of what he's talking about here is going to be acted out explicitly in the rest of the book, and so we're going to talk about it then. But after he dispels the mockers by telling them, hey, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning, he quotes Joel chapter 2, 28 through 32, which was a well-known prophecy, still obviously is, describing the last days. And it's interesting that Peter uses that expression in verse 17. These are the last days. Peter is saying that what these Jews are witnessing is the beginning of the last days. One commentator says, the end times clock has begun ticking. And Peter, who quotes Joel chapter 2, gives three manifestations of what this period of salvation history is going to look like. It's important for us to know that the Jews saw the last days as being a fairly short period of time, and so they would not have anticipated that this was going to last 2,000 years. Peter indicates that the first manifestation 
of the Spirit signaling the arrival of these last days is personal in nature. And that's where he talks about your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. In the Old Testament, only a tiny fraction of a percentage of people ever experienced these kind of prophetic gifts and visions and dreams. In this age, people of all ages and all genders and all socioeconomic stations are going to be able to experience these manifestations of God. So there's a to use a, a, a phrase, there's a democratization of all of these works of God. It's not going to be limited to just a tiny group of people. It's for anybody. Now, as we see these prophetic gifts functioning, as we go through the book of Acts, we'll spend time talking about them there. For now, let's just focus on Peter's main point, which is there's not going to be any hard lines of division separating men and women, age groups and socioeconomic groups. The Spirit's going to be available to all of these kind of groups of people as well as the manifestations of the Spirit. A second manifestation of the Spirit is cosmic. So the first is personal and the second is cosmic. And these are from commentators that have given those words. He says, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. This is really interesting because there's no record that anything like this was happening then as Peter's preaching. These are those cosmic signs in the heavens. And that's not going on. And yet Peter's saying, this is that which is spoken of by the prophet Joel. Well, where's, how do you explain that disconnect? Well, the simplest explanation is, remember, he's talking about the last days, right? The last days, although the Jews might not have known this, the Holy Spirit who was inspiring Peter knew it. And the last days includes everything from that moment until Jesus comes back. The judgment of God. Okay, so the simplest explanation for these cosmic signs is even though they had not seen them, Peter is talking about this entire period which includes these future cosmic events that are going to be manifest just before Jesus comes back and when he comes. I mean, when you read other Old Testament prophecies of the final judgment, they're replete with these kind of cosmic signs in the heavenlies. And you see some of them, fire and smoke in particular, in the book of the Revelation. So that makes sense that that's what he's talking about, because he's talking about the last days. A third manifestation of the Spirit is a bridge to the rest of Peter's message, and we're going to look at that later on, but it's in verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In general terms, this means that God's saving. God begins to save people, not just from the, the Jewish nation, not just from one ethnic group, from every tribe and tongue and nation. Uh, you're not going to be saved because you belong to a particular ethnic group. The Hebrews know all that's necessary to be saved. It's to savingly call on the name of the Lord. And we'll get into more of that as we see it happen again and again and again in Acts. The the question is, what's the point of all this? Is this just a kind of an interesting tour down charismatic and Pentecostal theology? How does all of this apply to us today? Well, one point of application surely must be, is Pentecost is there to remind us of something. And that is, the believers must continually seek to be filled and manifest the power 
of the Holy Spirit. Don't we want to be Spirit-powered people? It's clear from this that God's people are intended to be manifesting supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. There's only one Pentecost in the New Testament, but church history is replete with examples of God pouring out His Spirit again and again in uncommon ways so that Christ can be more clearly seen in the culture and many lost people can be saved. If we love Christ and we long to see His name honored and glorified, if we long to see many people come to Jesus, church history is very clear, and the lesson is times of revival. Times of spiritual revival is when those things happen most dramatically. If you look at the growth of the history of the church, it's not an even climb. It's big peaks and valleys, and then nothing, and then another big peak and a valley. And those are times when the Spirit of God is being poured out in special ways. And so anybody who longs for Christ to be made much of and, and for the church to break free from the dark pull of the idols of this world with all of their seductive power to pull us into this place, we need to pray for a new outbreak, a new move of the Spirit in revival. This is why we each week have on our prayer sheet a cry for God to revive His church. Every believer should want a reviving touch of the Spirit cry out for a, a new, fresh hatred of sin and a new, deeper burden that God would spread the gospel to lost people, that there'd be many converts here as well as to the nations. Those seasons in church history when this has happened most dramatically are in seasons when God has once again seen fit to pour out His Spirit in response to prayer. So as we look at the brokenness of our culture, and boy is it broken, and the lies that have so deeply penetrated our civilization, rotting it from the inside out. I don't think you have to be a social scientist to understand that the problems that we're seeing now are not going to be solved by having a Democrat or Republican in office. These are not political problems. They don't have political solutions. These are spiritual problems, and they require a profound move of God, reviving His church and creating countless new converts as God, for His glory, tears away the thick veil of deception covering their eyes and helps them to see this world the way God sees it. Pentecost should be a reminder of us of the massive power of the Spirit of God available to the church that can be manifest as God's people come together and pray for a new work of the Spirit among us. I trust that's the power of Pentecost today, and not simply answering a number of theological questions. May God give us the grace to cry out for a new last day's movement of the Spirit that would shake this world for Christ, for His glory, and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, we do long for this. We long for your church to look like Jesus. God, we long for the Spirit of God to be poured out so that people right now who don't know the difference between a man and a woman or claim to, for people who are denying basic creation ordinances, Father, for people who are hating a certain group of people simply because they're of a certain ethnicity, for people who are drawing lines on whether an oppressor or an oppressed is in view, and so therefore I'm going to formulate my opinion based on that very narrow 
distinction, oh God, that and a thousand other symptoms of a very sick and rotting world. God, we know that the answer comes from you. We know that the answer comes as you sovereignly choose to pour out your spirit and do a new thing. And God, we long to hear the words of Isaiah 43. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? Now it springs up. I'm making a way in the desert. Oh God, would you make a way in the desert? And God, would you do this work? For Jesus' sake, amen.